0: Good morning, everyone. Sorry, after all that chat that's just gone on, you can at least say good morning, all right? Good morning, folk. Thank you. I don't want it to be a pantomime, but, you know, just do it. Um, so, yeah, as Dan said, we're just concluding in one Peter. Some of you will have been here each week and listened to it. For others, you, this might be your first time. If you haven't caught up, go onto the website. Unfortunately, Jonas didn't tape very well, so, um, but the other talks are all up there. And if you didn't know, the title of these talks is called Citizens. And we're citizens of heaven in this world. Now, actually, alongside the baptism, it works so well. But I just thought I'd unpick these words. What does citizens of heaven in this world even mean? So to be a citizen, you're a person of a particular country who has rights because of being born there or because you've been given the rights. So we have been given the rights to be citizens of heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross. So we can sit here in whatever mucked-up life we're living at the moment and go, we are citizens of heaven, but purely through the grace of God. And what does it mean by world? Because you sort of think, you know, the world, you look out there, the world is beautiful. But the way the world cosmos can be used in three ways. So in the beginning, when we talk about it in Genesis, they are talking planet. The world. If We remember in John 3.16, when God so loved the world, he gave his only son. We're not necessarily talking trees and plants. We're talking humanity. So God so loved humanity that he gave his son. And in this chapter, when we look at the world, what we're looking at is more the way of the world, the culture of the world. That's contradictory to citizenship in heaven. But we are living, I think you might have noticed, in the world a citizenship of heaven. So it's working out how do we do that. And I suppose the ways of the world is you just look for self, don't you? It's often self-gain, it's what I can achieve, what about me? Whereas citizenship of heaven is looking elsewhere. The, the length of time you're looking for in the world, what, 70, 80, 90, 100? I think I've covered everybody. Years. Apologies for the one to 102 next week. But that's what you're looking for is that lifespan. When you're a citizen of heaven, you're looking to eternity. So you have this, you know, disposition. So, like Pete said last week, we live in the world environment and we're there to shape our environment, not to have the environment shape us. So we're living a life that shapes the environment. And to do that, we need to be focused in God. Now, we are hosting um, a Ukrainian lady at the moment, bless her, she's been with us for about five weeks, pray for the poor lady, Um, because she lives with us, and um, she didn't speak, she doesn't speak much English, and when she came, she really didn't speak any English, and I'd only prepared one Ukrainian word, so Google Translate is slightly limited, if not any of you have tried it, say hi is better, just to let you know, if ever you come across Ukrainians, you say hi. So she came across, and I can't begin to understand what she's come from. I know she's left her husband behind. I know she's left her 22-year-old son behind. Um, she's in Kharkiv. You'll have seen about the, you know, the chaos in Kharkiv. She came across with her daughter and the 15-month-old who are living somewhere else in the village close to us, and Svetlina lives with us. And, um, yeah, I can't imagine what she's come from. She tells me that I think her husband's business is completely flattened, so I don't know what he's doing. Um, But she's going into Exeter on the bus nowadays, which is amazing. And she has um, English lessons once a week up at the college. The first week, which I thought was really helpful, she found out that Edinburgh is the capital of Scotland and Belfast capital... Which I think, when you live in a village in Devon, is going to be so useful in your first week (laughs) of living here. I just felt, I don't know, maybe things like, where is, can I please, things like that. Anyway, so that's that. And she came back one evening and... um, She was obviously upset. And Google Translate, between us, we worked out she had seen an accident while she was on the bus. And then later that evening, we were looking it up, and it was a gentleman got killed by a bus. He got run over. I don't know, about two weeks ago, an old gentleman walked out in front of the bus in Exeter, and she was on the bus. And she saw the gentleman with all the blood, so she saw that. But the bus driver, and it wasn't his fault at all, had taken her and her daughter the previous day and had been really helpful to show them where they wanted to go and pointing out roads. And we worked out the next day why she was so upset is that she was concerned he was going to get arrested. And, with the, and she was looking at it from a Ukrainian point of view where she would say there'd be a lot of bribery in that and there'd be a lot of corruption. And we were trying to say, no, if it wasn't his fault... Do you see what I'm saying? The justice would be there. And what she was doing was bringing her culture into our culture, and it didn't fit. Now, in a way, that's a really weak analogy, but it can be like that with us, isn't it? We see something, and we can step back into our old earthly culture rather than using what we know through Christ. So we're now going to get Isaac to read the chapter. You can remember we're looking at how it was, how it is, and how we live our lives. 1 Peter 5.
1: To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, But being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to those who are humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong. ...firm and steadfast. To him be the power and forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas... Do you want that bit red? Good yeah, fine. <laughs> with the help of Silas, who I'm regarding as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this true grace of God, stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. As, and so did, does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love and peace to you all in Christ.
0: Thank you. We're going to really be looking at from second part of verse 5 up to verse 10. Um, We could do the whole lot, but I think the baptism party wouldn't start until tomorrow if we do all of that. So we're going to limit ourselves to this bit. And a lot of the words I'm going to be looking at were words that were actually said in the promises that you made on behalf of little one. And so we're going to look for at words as to how to help us live in the, as citizens of heaven. And the first one is humility. Now, actually, this was um, a crossword clue in the Times. Yeah, I live that sort of life, I tell you. In the <laughs> Times last week, it was a crossword clue. And it was actually, I can't remember what the clue was, but it was actually derogatory. And it, the answer was humility. And that is often how we see humility. If someone's humble or someone shows humility... It's not necessarily a characteristic that we're looking for. But in this few verses, it's used three times. So it's not a mistake. It's going back. And humility, it isn't self-deprecating or self-hating or putting oneself down. And often that can be how people consider it. We can't put ourselves down because, however much you might think you muck up, we are in the image of God. And we cannot. We are living the image of God. So we cannot hate ourselves. If you're hating what you think you are, you're hating what God made you. Yeah. So it's not self-hating. It's not self-deprecating. And the other side of it, it's not self-focused. So life, I hate to tell you this, life doesn't revolve around you. Okay. So it's not self-focused. It's putting other people first. It's self-forgetting. It means that we focus on God. We focus on others. We don't focus on the big me. As we start to focus on the big me, and it mentions in verse 5, we start to worry. And it says about the worrying, on oh, one verse before that, verse 5. Can we? Thank you. Um, it does in my version. Apologies. So you keep, anyway, speak with that at the moment anyway, because that's going to make sense. Thank you. When we worry, it's often a sign that we've turned from God and we've turned towards us. We worry. It's when that worry gets a hold of us, and we can't see beyond it. Obviously, we're going to worry if we go up to the car park, and our car's got nicked. We're not just going to say it's part of Got would be interesting if anyone get their car out there and nick it anyway. But, <laughs> you know, if your kid's ill, you're going to worry. But that worry gets you to do something, yes? It's when that worry stops you doing something. It's when you stepped out and you thought... I'm going to go for that job. I'm going for that path. And it doesn't happen. And all you can do is think, why didn't I get that job? Why didn't I get that job? Why didn't I get that job? I'd that have been amazing if I'd got that job. And what you're doing is putting your future in your own hands. You're not allowing God to say, no, but this is this. Yeah? When you worry that you just think, I haven't got, I can't, I won't. This money, the family, you know, is my child ever going to understand me? And you just get into that, but you don't focus on God. So to worry is to take the focus back on you. It's that proud presumption that you actually know better than God. It's saying, it's all right, God, I'm going to deal with this part of my life. Okay. Which, as you say, it's ridiculous. And the other side, when we're self-focusing, tends to be pride. Where actually, you forget you need God, you've got it covered. You've got it sorted. You know where you're going next in your life. You know what God wants you to do. In fact, you don't need to tell him. You're going to let him know at the end of it what's happening. So when we have pride and when we have worry, they're really the opposite side to allowing grace to work in our lives. And grace, do you remember people saying this last week, how grace flows through us and then flows out of us? If we stop it with worry and pride and things that are self-focusing, we don't allow that to happen. And it's looking at this um, idea of how do we allow grace? How do, how do we allow humility? Is there a checklist? And there's two things it says. One of us is to clothe ourselves, and the other one is to cast aside our worries. Now, to clothe ourselves, I know, you'll have realized I've got to a lot of thought of how to clothe myself this morning, you're going to a barn, it's going to be cold, and those clothes are beside your bed on the floor anyway, and they're the quickest things to put on because your bedroom's cold. Okay? <laughs> but we've decided what to wear. If you're going to dress yourself, this is so obvious, you need to do it. The clothes don't magically come on you. You have to clothe yourself, and you clothe yourself according to what you're needing to do. Yeah? So you you look back into John... Do you remember Jesus clothing himself with an apron to wash the feet of his disciples? He clothed himself. He made that choice to put that apron on to wash the feet. He clothed himself as a servant. We can choose to clothe ourselves in humility. We can also choose not to. And sometimes that's the easier option. But we are asked to clothe ourselves, to choose humility to choose others, to choose looking at God's focus on our life and not ours. So that's the clothing. And then the other side, it says, we've got it up to cast. There you go, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And Dan, without even knowing it, demonstrated it this morning. When holding sky... He had to let go of the mic. I don't know if you noticed this is this a deep, profound moment, especially if you think, oh, that's a good illustration for about five minutes' time. Okay, if you cast, you don't just do that. You cast. Yeah, you use both hands. That's the idea of casting is you throw it away with both hands, not just one. So when you have this worry, you cast your anxieties onto God. Now, how many of us do that brilliantly, but twenty-four hours later think, I'll just go and get that back again. Feeling a bit naked without it. Oh no, no, no. Anyway, I've given it to God for twenty-four hours, haven't had an answer, I'll bring it back again. The word cast to throw to Jesus, to throw to God, so give it to him. Spurgeon gave an idea. So I just feel every time I give an example, it's Spurgeon. What he was saying is that there's a story, and I'm sure you've heard it before. A gentleman, a man was helping somebody move house. But when he arrived at the house, he had bags of his own that he had brought with him. So obviously, he was completely incapable of moving anything else because his hands were full with his own bags. We can go to Christ and sometimes have our arms full of our own concerns and then... We're of no use. We need to cast away so that our arms are open and ready to receive. And then we get on to this next bit. Verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand further in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The devil. When this subject comes up, it can open a lot of opinions. There will be some that say there is no devil. There isn't evil. And there will be others that are looking for the devil the whole time. Everything that's happened to me is because of the devil, because of the devil, because of the devil. And it's for Christians to understand what it is to face evil. We announced it again in the baptism prayers. We're going to renounce the devil. We're going to renounce evil. Okay, we cannot deny its existence. If we deny its existence, we deny a lot of biblical truths. We deny a lot of what Jesus said about combating evil. So, I just want to do two things before I carry on about the devil. Colossians 2, verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Okay? God has taken... The power of the devil away. Look at him on the cross. What are the last words he said, Jesus? It is finished. It is final. I have, I have defeated the devil. Okay, I have defeated evil. If you are in Christ, the devil has no claim over you. But, and it's a quite a well known, isn't it? Um, apologies, it's an analogy I'm going to give now about D Day. Um, you know, on D Day, Hitler knew he was defeated. Hitler knew he was defeated. But until victory in VE Day, which is about nine, ten months later, apologies to more accurate historians than me, that's between D-Day and VE Day, Hitler caused havoc. He knew he was defeated, but he didn't stop. He carried on trying to cause havoc, knowing he was defeated. And between, really, the day that Jesus died and was erected and to his second coming, we're in that period the devil knows he's defeated, but it's not going to stop him trying to ha- cause havoc in our lives. Okay. And just to sort of give some theologians, theologians some voice in case you think I'm do- overdoing it one way or the other. C.S. Lewis, line which in the wardrobe, that bit. He says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed and counterclaimed by Satan. Tom Wright, got to have a bit of Tom Wright. When human beings worship that which is not God, they give authority to forces of destruction and malevolence, and these forces gain a power. Evil is large, cosmic, organized, subtle, persuasive, and real. The powers never appear as evil or coercive. The powers always masquerade as freedoms that we have been given graciously or as necessities that we cannot live without. Martin Luther, more to the point, just said, put your fists together. And fight. To fight, though, you must, number one, know your enemy. Number two, you must know your authority in which you fight the enemy. And number three, you must know how to fight. And we hear it still prowling around. Now, I've watched enough David Attenborough programmes to be an expert in lions in Devon. And what you know when you see a lion in Devon is that if they are hungry... That's the one thing on their head, minds, yeah? And they are going to find something to eat. They're not finding something to nibble with and play. They're wanting to find something to eat. And they're not going to go in to a herd of strong, we'll keep it to Devon, cows, okay, and find the middle cow. What they are going to do, apologies for those that have got anything beyond a minor knowledge of lions... What they're going to do is seek the weaker ones, aren't they? The ones that have wandered off, the ones that they stand a chance of grabbing. Can you see how this is working? We're talking about Christianity, isn't it? When you think you may be strong, but you've actually wandered off, you don't need to pray. God, I prayed the other week. I don't need to pray again. I don't need to put this to God. I'm all right. I'm doing okay. i go to St. Basil's. What else could go wrong? You are allowing yourself to think you're strong, but to get weaker and weaker. And that is what the devil is looking for. Now, he's not looking for fisticuffs. We're not looking for a fight. We are looking for something far more devious, as we heard earlier. Just take a moment to think of Jesus after 40 days of hunger being tested by the devil. Okay? Number one, it shows Jesus did know there was a personification of evil. But what did the devil do? Number one, he got his weak spot. Jesus would have been blimmin' hungry by then. Go on, turn these stones into bread. Yeah? There's nothing wrong with turning stones into bread. But what would it be? It would have been the self-focus of Jesus if he had done it. He would not have been doing God's will. What did Jesus say? Answered him with scripture. Answered him with the truth. Yeah? Then he just sort of said, and this is the one. Maybe it's for me. I might be just talking to myself. Do you really call yourself the son of God? Really? You a bit of a failure? Do you think you've done it? These are my words, by the way. You won't read them in any version. Um, <laughs> que- making Jesus just question, are you really sure this is what you should be doing? How many times does he say that to us? Or maybe it's just me. And Jesus, again, answered. He did not believe the lie. He answered with the scripture. He answered to go back to know who he was, why he was there, and what he was doing. And then thirdly, he used scripture again to say to him, well, actually, I think you're wrong. This is devil. And Jesus said, you've plucked that out. It isn't right. This is what scripture says. And that is sometimes how the devil plays with us. Where's that little weak spot where he's going to get you? He's not going to go, da I'm here. He's going to do that little bit. You know that little worry you've got? You're probably right to worry, actually. I think, yeah, you're going to have a problem there. You know when you have that, Well, I? Yeah, no, you will. You will. You're going to muck up. In fact, you're a bit of a shambles, really, aren't you? You know, do you think God really loves you? Do you really think you are a child of God? Do you really think you are saved by that cross? Just in those moments when you feel alone, that is where he's going to get you. And the other thing I think which he actually is another way he sort of can get us with these little voices is when we suffer... And again, Peter was talking about this last week, wasn't it? About when we... We're all going to suffer. John Mark Homer just says, Suffering is inevitable. Joy isn't. Okay? Suffering is inevitable. But if you are faithfully following what you feel is the path of Christ and suffering happens, it can sometimes kick you off your feet. You sometimes think, well, am I doing right? We will suffer. We will have times of weakness. We will have times when we're pushed. But we know... That standing on the truth of God's love for each one of us here, standing for the knowledge of his love that we cannot even begin to fathom, we know that we are standing on truth, on firm ground, and we can withstand anything that is thrown at us in this life. And I just want to finish by looking at verse 10. And this is what we hold on to. This is the truth that is affirmed for all of us. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. In some versions, it says he will perfect you. Each of us, God has got a plan to completely, 100% restore us to who we will fully be. It may not be in this life, It may not be soon, but the promise that we stand on is knowing that we have a God who will finish everything he promises, and he has the power forever and ever. Amen.